Welcome to Making Footprints, Not Blueprints, a regular podcast about matters philosophical and religious. My name is Andrew James Brown, and despite being myself an atheistically inclined freethinker, I'm also the minister to the Unitarian Church in the city of Cambridge, UK. The title of this podcast is borrowed from the philosopher Herbert Fingeret, who, in his book, The Self in Transformation, offered us studies that were outcomes rather than realised objectives, which were offered to the reader as an encouragement to make intellectual footprints, not blueprints. This podcast tries to proceed in a similar fashion and takes seriously an insight of the poet A.R. Ammons, who felt that true human freedom only comes when we have understood that full scope always eludes our grasp, that there is no finality of vision, that we have perceived nothing completely, and that, therefore, and thankfully, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. Welcome to this week's New Walk. I originally wrote this piece for Mothering Sunday back in March 2019 for the congregation of the Cambridge Unitarian Church, and I offer it once again because I still think it says something useful and highly relevant to a liberal religious tradition which, at least in part, is willing to contemplate, if not always then attempt to answer, the question of how it might be able to move from a basically supernaturalist worldview to a more religiously naturalistic one. But I also offer it now in the context of the murder last week here in the UK of Sarah Everard at the hands of a violent male perpetrator. Sarah's violent death has revealed once again the truly shocking truth that the great majority of women continue daily to live in fear of male violence and that this shocking and depressing fact never seems to change. My thought and hope is that one creative way forward might be by finding various ways to get our culture finally to let go of its obsession with and conscious or unconscious commitment to the supreme fiction of a violent male patriarchal monotheistic God. The question then becomes what kind of supreme fiction might best be brought into play that could better serve all of humanity male and female, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender alike. As will shortly become apparent, I think Venus or Aphrodite is by far the best candidate. Although I have tried my best to avoid this, I fully recognise that my offering up here of Venus as my own preferred supreme fiction may still, occasionally, display the male gaze at work, and I must therefore make it clear that I'm open to being challenged and corrected at any point if and when my male gaze becomes apparent to clearer, wiser eyes than my own. Mothering Sunday The mother of matter is the matter of the mother, a poetic supreme fiction for our age. 
the personification of the Godhead, God, the divine, the sacred and so on, is an ancient and venerable, if always somewhat risky, poetic practice. It is risky basically because we human beings seem to find it all too easy, seamlessly to move from poetic personification to thinking and then acting as if the same personification were somehow an accurate description of some immutable and eternal reality. Poetry becomes dogma, and before you know it, there has grown up a thorny thicket of religious institutions with associated desires to censure and even destroy on their own altars all other possible understandings of the gods, the divine and the sacred. On the other hand, even though I know this well, I remain convinced that we cannot live fully without having something that the poet Wallace Stevens called a supreme fiction, namely, without the creation of an idea that would serve as a fictive replacement for the idea of God, known to be fictive, but willfully believed. Stevens's hope was that such an idea might be able to help us correct and improve our old and no longer persuasive religious ideas about God, and which, in their modified form, could then serve once again as a kind of narrative centre around which we may usefully be centripetally gathered and ordered. Not eternally, of course, but always in a way that could be appropriate and stable enough for our own time, place and culture. Stevens never seems to have found a new supreme fiction that worked for him personally, let alone one appropriate for his own time and culture. But I remain convinced that such a fiction can still emerge, and Mothering Sunday gives me an opportunity to place before you once again a few working notes towards my own preferred supreme fiction. Since early 2008... Whenever I feel the desire or need to meditate before and give thanks to a god in a poetic, personified form, it has been to the goddess Venus, as I have received her through the poetry of the first-century Roman poet, Lucretius. In recent years, this personal intuition has been modified and strengthened, thanks to a radical and, to me, inspiring re-reading of Lucretius by the philosopher Thomas Nail. Today, this radical re-reading is vitally necessary, because ever since Lucretius's poem was rediscovered in 1417 by Poggio Bracciolini, it has continually been misread as promoting a version of ancient Greek atomism, the view that all reality is made up of indivisible, individual atoms moving about and interacting together in a void. Not surprisingly, this misreading was further embedded in our culture during the late 18th and early 19th centuries as our own natural scientists began to formulate what became a new kind of atomic theory. However, as Thomas Nail points out, quote, Although the Latin word atomos, meaning smallest particle, was available to Lucretius to use in his poem, he intentionally did not use it, nor did he use the Latin word particular or particle to describe matter. The English translations of atom, particle and others have all been added to the text in translation based on a certain historical interpretation of it. Unquote. 
Nail continues by noting that, quote, Lucretius rejected entirely the notion that things emerged from discrete particles. To believe otherwise is to distort the original meanings of the Latin text, as well as the absolutely enormous poetic apparatus he summoned to describe the flowing, swirling, folding and weaving of the flux of matter. Although Lucretius rejected the term atomos, he remained absolutely true to one aspect of the original Greek meaning of the word atomos. From a meaning not, and temno meaning I cut. Being is not cut up into discrete particles, but is composed of continuous flows, folds and weaves. Discrete things, rerum, are composed of corporeal flows, corpora, that move together, conflux, and fold over themselves, nexus, in a woven knotwork, contextum. For Lucretius, things only emerge and have their being within and imminent to the flow and flux of matter in motion. Discreteness is an apparent product of continuous folded matter, uncut, undivided and in motion, and not the other way around. Unquote. This is, as I hope you see, a very different way of looking at the world than that which was employed by both ancient and more early modern atomists, and is one which resonates strongly with what contemporary physics seem to be revealing to us about how our world is structured. If you want to get a sense of how Lucretius can still inspire a modern scientist, just take a look at the contemporary Italian theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli's work, where Lucretius makes a couple of sparkling appearances. Naturally, this does not make Lucretius some kind of proto-quantum field theorist. That would be ridiculous. But, as Nail observes, it's not that Lucretius's description in his poem of nature's way of working matches that of contemporary science, but simply that it is not inconsistent with it, and that, therefore, they are mutually illuminating and appreciable in their own terms. Anyway, the thing is, once you begin to see clearly that Lucretius is concerned not with indivisible atoms and void, but with the ceaseless flowing, swirling, folding and weaving of the flux of matter, his evocation of the life-giving goddess Venus as both the mother, the martyr of all things, and also the very matter, the materia of all things, including herself as mother, of course, all this begins to make a rich poetic sense that is not inconsistent with our current scientific knowledge. Consequently, for me, Venus has begun to emerge ever more powerfully as a worthy poetic supreme fiction suitable for our own age. As an initial attempt to tempt you into considering the goddess in a similar fashion, what now follows is a representation of some of the ways Thomas Nail talks about how Lucretius interprets Venus as the mother of matter. It is perhaps helpful to start with the ancient myth of Venus's birth and to have before you as an aid memoir Botticelli's glorious painting, The Birth of Venus, 
I've put a link to this picture in the episode notes. In what follows, remember that Venus is the Roman name of the goddess whom the Greeks knew as Aphrodite. So, according to Hesiod, while Uranus, sky, was having sexual intercourse with his mate Gaia, earth, he was ambushed and castrated by his son Cronos, who cast his father's genitals into the sea. Foam issued from them, and within the foam a maiden grew. The genitals came eventually to land at Cyprus, where Aphrodite stepped ashore. In Botticelli's painting, Venus comes ashore, much less gruesomely, from a giant scallop shell. All the images contained in the painting, and in Lucretius's poem, are evocations of the flowing, swirling, folding and weaving of the flux of matter. An obvious example in the painting is the depiction of Zephyr, the wind god, blowing Venus ashore. But perhaps less obviously we see this in the fact that Venus is made of the foam of the ocean. Here is Nail speaking of this. Quote, Bubbles and froth are produced when the continuous flows of the ocean fold back over themselves, trapping air within their pleat. The fold gives the flows of air and water depth, extension and spatiality. The fold produces the appearance of unity, extension and stability, grounded in the continuity of a heterogeneous flux. The iridescent throned Aphrodite, as Sappho writes. Unquote. Secondly, there is the shell. Nail continues. Quote, the most vulva-like of all seashells, the scallop shell is an organism, like other seashells, that gathers in the liquid flows of calcium carbonate from the periphery towards a place of central condensation. The seashell is formed by gathering these pedetic mineral flows and folding them together and over one another again and again. The shell, therefore, introduces a clin, a curvature or inclination or desire into the chaotic flows of the ocean. Unquote. Thirdly, there is the idea of space. As Nail observes, quote, It is the clin or curve of desire in Venus's shell that introduces space into the chaos of flux. Unquote. Space is vital here because if there were only ever the chaos of flux, nothing could come to be in the way things clearly do. But, wonders of wonders, the protective enclosing clin, the curve of Venus's shell, reminds us that the chaos of flux is always already producing local and regional stabilities that gift us with the universe of things in which we live and move and have our being. Importantly, Although Lucretius holds Venus up as a goddess in this fashion, she is not understood by him as being some kind of supernatural being standing outside nature, making the world, but instead as a way by and through which a person can more easily meditate upon the way nature natures, 
i.e. how the world continually makes and remakes itself. Lucretius's depiction of Venus in his poem is a poetic supreme fiction, which aims both to help us understand and to be passionate about the way nature natures, and how her mothering hand, which is always already making and touching us and all things, is simultaneously always already being touched back by what it touches. As Nail reminds us, Venus is, quote, the mother of Aeneas, the martyr of Aeneas, from which the Latin words materias, material, and materia, matter, also come. Martyr is also the tree or matrix, the source of the tree's growth, whose Indo-European root is described by the Greek word hula, meaning tree and matter. First philosophy for Lucretius begins with the mother, with matter itself, with the creative power of matter itself to produce all things, the anidum. Nail also points out that Venus becomes the material mother goddess, and so the concept of materias both maternalizes matter and materializes the mother at the same time. Quote, In other words, the mother of all creation is herself made of the same matter that she creates. Her materiality is the same materiality of the world. The mother of matter is the matter of the mother. Her creation is, therefore, the process of matter's own process of materialization. Maternalization is materialization. Of course, in one important sense, Venus cannot be said to exist as a discrete, identifiable entity whom I or Lucretius could meet in the temple, town or countryside. However, because everything about her as a poetic supreme fiction speaks so well both to and of the way we are coming to think our world works, she is for me a meaningful and beautiful personification before whom my expressions of gratitude for her bounty can be expressed and my poetic, ethical and natural science-related thoughts and meditations can usefully and creatively flow, fold and weave. As Diogenes Laertius says in his chapter about Lucretius's greatest philosophical influence, Epicurus, the wise person will set up votive images. And I freely confess here that in my study and in the manse yard next door you will find multiple depictions of Venus dotted around the place, before which I often find myself gratefully stopping, thinking, pondering and wondering. Now, you may think that there really is no need to personify the way nature natures, let alone actually set up a votive image of the goddess Venus. Well, you're probably right. You don't need to do this in any absolute way. But along with countless other human beings, through the many hundreds of thousands of years of human existence, I do feel such a need. And I continue to think that an appropriate poetic supreme fiction, when knowingly understood as fictive but nevertheless willfully believed in or contemplated, 
can usefully help us both better understand and fully enter interactively into the world and draw forth from it great meaning and beauty. Indeed, on this subject of personification, one of the most influential modern materialists, political theorists and philosophers, Jane Bennett, concludes her book Vibrant Matter by writing this very personal statement. Quote, I believe in one matter-energy, the maker of things seen and unseen. I believe that this pluriverse is traversed by heterogeneities that are continually doing things. I believe it is wrong to deny vitality to non-human bodies, forces and forms, and that a careful course of anthropomorphization can help reveal that vitality, even though it resists full translation and exceeds my comprehensive grasp. I believe that encounters with lively matter can chasten my fantasies of human mastery, highlight the common materiality of all that is, expose a wider distribution of agency, and reshape the self and its interests. Unquote. I think Bennett is right, and in an age when an ecological emergency is clearly requiring us urgently to reshape ourselves and our interests, and when, at the same time, we are also appreciating more and more that we ourselves are intraactive parts of ceaselessly moving fluxes and flows of matter-energy, is not Lucretius's poetic supreme fiction of a ceaselessly creative, moving and material goddess more appropriate and needed than our former patriarchal supreme fictions about a static and immovable father god. I cannot but think so. Anyway, come Mothering Sunday, in addition to raising a toast to my earthly mother, I'll have no hesitations in raising another glass of aqua vitae to toast and give hearty and joyous thanks to the mother of matter, creatrix, bountiful Venus. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. So, farewell for now, and remember, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. See you on the path. Thank you again for listening to the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and each new podcast will be delivered to your device as soon as it is released. Also, if you'd like to join the conversation, please feel free to comment on the blog or come along to the occasional live online discussions which take place on Wednesday evenings at 7.30pm GMT. Anyone is invited to ask questions and make comments on the issues discussed in the podcast. You can find all the necessary links in the episode notes. We look forward to talking with you then.